Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And education, let's face it, is absolutely essential for a democracy to function. Other, less attractive forms of government see education as a threat, unnecessary, In recent decades, many right-wing Republicans have cut funding for public education, intentionally dumbing down America, and so we have the dangerous rise of Trumpism. They knew exactly what they were doing. But education goes on. Teachers remain dedicated, no matter what obstacles they are thrown. They are not clearly in it for the money, that's for sure. Their reward is teaching young people and teaching them how to learn, helping them grow their abilities to learn and become better citizens of communities, as well as gain the skills to function effectively as individuals. Considering the challenges that face teachers in the 21st century, one can imagine how much easier it used to be simple, straightforward pedagogy. Students sitting upright at their desks, absorbing lessons from the universally respected teacher at the lectern. Individual and community needs, I can imagine, were not even in the mix of how it was done. Those days are long gone. Today, educators and policymakers confront challenging questions of ethics, justice, and equity on a regular basis. How much effort should be made with today's limited resources to keep a struggling student going if he or she is likely to drop out, for example? If a community has rigid standards for behavior, must teachers report incidents to law enforcement or is it better to try to deal with problems separate from the criminal justice system? There are many everyday dilemmas teachers face which are at the same time completely ordinary and immensely challenging at the same time. There's been a lot of work done to address these questions at the Justice in Schools Project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive have employed much of the research and methods developed at this institution to publish their new book, Dilemmas of Educational Ethic, Cases and Commentaries. Our guests are Meira Levinson, who is professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and author of No Citizen Left Behind, and a former middle school teacher in the Atlanta and Boston public schools. Interesting choices of locations. And also we have Jacob Fay, a doctoral student and member of the Early Career Scholars Program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here. 
Well, Absolutely thrilled. Bert. Well, what made motivated you to write this book? Who is, is your target audience, and what is the need for it? We were motivated um, by a few considerations. One is, um, you know, frankly, when I was a teacher uh, myself, I found myself wrestling with ethical dilemmas on an almost daily basis. How should I balance my obligations towards one student as opposed to another, towards a group of individuals with a you know, particular set of needs versus the class as a whole or the school as a whole? Um, as a, once I became a parent uh, and I started trying to navigate, actually, the Boston Public Schools with my own children, I again uh, started facing ethical dilemmas and hearing, actually, other parents talk about the ethical dilemmas of well, you know, I, uh, should I take up this uh, scarce uh, pre-kindergarten place uh, when I could afford to send my kids, say, to the same Montessori preschool? But if I don't, I know that I'll lose access to this, you know, really great school uh, in BPS that I want to send my child to later. How much should I advocate for my own child uh, when I realize that there are other uh, kids in the school who may need different things? How do I... Um, you know, how do I, say, donate money or time, or how do I make sure that my uh, my class, my student, my teacher gets what they need? Uh, there were all sorts of questions that I found myself wrestling with as a parent, that I had wrestled with as a teacher, and then once I started teaching uh, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, that I found my students wrestling with uh, as uh, principals, as superintendents in training, teachers in training, policy makers, they too would come and saying, I don't know, should I teach in a charter school or in a district school? How do I deal with these discipline policies that I'm being asked to implement? I know that I want to build a great uh, sort of teacher pipeline uh, for my school, but uh, I'm concerned because that means that I'm going to be looking um, at you know certain teachers and asking a lot of them, and I'm not sure if it's the right model to say promote uh, sort of high stress, high demand. Mm-hmm. If that leads to high burnout, uh, and so we were seeing these ethical dilemmas all over the place in education. But um, in fact, few people were finding the ways to talk about them. Certainly, when I was teaching, and I worried that I had done something, say ethically unjustified, that I had treated a kid unfairly, that I had not been equitable, uh, or that I hadn't recognized merit or responsibility appropriately. Hmm. Um, you know, that was not something that I would talk about, say, with my principal or with the other teachers on my team, because nobody wants to admit that they have you know, behaved badly, that they've done something that they fear is actually immoral. So I would just go home, and I might uh, agonize about it with my husband, Mostly, though, I would keep it bottled up inside, and that's what we've discovered when we've worked with so many teachers and principals and district leaders and so forth, is that they agonize about these issues in private, but they've had no way, actually, to talk about them in public. And so our goal in writing the book um, and in sharing it is to enable people to have open conversations about the ethical dilemmas that we face in education, help them become better decision makers themselves so that our educational policies and practices can actually be more ethical and more defensible over time and help people build a kind of ethical repertoire to go with their pedagogical repertoire or their leadership. And so we're hoping that the book will be used by current uh, teachers and principals and school board members and parents and PTA members and so forth 
as well as teachers and, and um, educational leaders and training, policymakers and training, and by sort of members of the larger community to be able to have conversations about these issues. And, you know, I have... Um, I was just going to say, I have a lot of friends who are teachers, who have been teachers for a long, long time. And as I said in the beginning, none of them are in it for the money. And what you describe here, you know, I think about all the difficulties they have with problem students, with uh, lack of funding, uh, with uh, difficult administrations, with lack of parental involvement. Ethics, I hadn't even considered that as a hurdle, but I, I wow, that's some, some difficult stuff. It's uh, uh, my hat's off always to uh, people who choose to go into the profession. Jacob, I'm sorry to interrupt. What were you about to say? Oh, so I was, I was just going to answer that, um, you know, so for me, it was, it, was an, it was an easy sort of um, way into the book because when your advisor asks you to write a book with her and you're a doctoral student, you, you say yes sure. immediately, right? <laughs> of course. Um, but uh, to, to sort of get back to the point that you just brought up, in, in all seriousness, um, I was a middle school teacher as well for five years, and what sort of brought me back to graduate school was just an accumulation of, of questions about my practice um, that I couldn't answer while trying to be an effective teacher. Um, and when I was you know, studying with Mira and, uh, and, and eventually working towards this book, it was... Um, really helpful to, to sort of learn about these sort of ethical language and dimensions of practice that, that I just didn't have a language for as a, as a young teacher. Um, and so I, this book has been um, such a wonderful opportunity to share some of the thinking that we've been doing over the past couple of years about, about this sort of ethical dimensions of teacher practice and how, how much we hope that this will help teachers um, who struggle in the same way that we've described in their own practice with the questions that we've, we've been wrestling with. If I can jump in one last thing. Sure. Your point that teachers are not in it for the money, right? They're not in it for the honor or the fame or even, you know, the respect. They're in it because they want to do good for others, right? Absolutely. They want to increase opportunities for children. They want to help children grow up and, be, and uh, become sort of full, healthy, happy human beings who can live good lives and contribute to the world. And those are fundamentally ethical commitments, uh, which means that sort of questions of ethics and values are central to the profession that they're mm. a part of. Hmm, interesting. There's not many professions where ethics can be central to it. And, and you're right. I mean, the, the only reward, and from what I've seen, it is a very significant reward when you see students, that you're reaching students and you're making a difference in their lives when they're becoming better learners, more capable of doing it, better members of the community. Clearly, a lot of jobs that, that you know pay a lot more money don't have that kind of reward. Now, that's just my bias, I suppose. The book has examples of some difficult ethical decisions made daily by teachers, principals, school district leaders, and policymakers. What are some examples of those thorny uh, ethical decisions? So we, um, thanks for asking. So we start, the, the uh, Dilemmas of Educational Ethics has six case studies in the book, and then there are commentaries. Um, by uh, philosophers and educational researchers and also teachers and district leaders and former superintendents and other you know, practitioners and policymakers. And the cases, uh, though, as you mentioned, are meant to highlight 
in fact, quite ordinary ethical dilemmas um, that, you know, people wrestle with around the country, but again, that we don't uh, talk about overtly very much. So we start with a case that I wrestled with every single year that I taught eighth grade in Atlanta in the Boston Public Schools about a child who, um, a girl who has been working as hard as she can, who uh, sort of as hard as she knows how to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been staying after school every day that she's been coming to school. She's raised her reading level by two levels. Um, she's really dedicated. And at the same time, she is vastly underprepared to go on to ninth grade. She's failing science and social studies. Uh, her reading level, although it's increased by two grade levels, it went up from a third grade to a fifth grade level. Mm. She'd missed 17 days of school in the mm. spring semester alone, although that's because she was being bounced around uh, foster care, foster homes, uh, which, and she entered the foster system after watching her brother get shot and killed um, on the porch next to her on Halloween night. Mm. Right, so she's struggling with a ton of stuff. She clearly does not meet the criteria to be promoted uh, to ninth grade. Uh, and on the other hand, um, she's been working so hard. She's 15. She's going to turn 16. She's going to be, you know, three years older than some of the kids in the eighth grade class with her. Mm. And her teachers know that she's going to drop out if they retain her. And so they're struggling with this question of how do we serve her needs? How do we serve the needs of the rest of the class, of the high school that would have to get her, of, the, of their own eighth grade if they retain her? Uh, and, you know, how did they get into this situation in the first place? We also look at another classroom where there's an eight-year-old um, who's really sweet and smart and great when she is not uh, sort of agitated beyond the point of no return. She has some kind of mental mm-hmm. illness that causes her, when she gets very stressed, to lash out, to shriek, to push desks, things like that. And uh, there's a lot of disagreements among her teacher, among the principal, among the parents of other children in her class, among the children themselves, as to how many accommodations Kate should get in order to stay in the classroom. What is her status in the classroom as opposed to the other kids, and whose needs can and should be served, and how? We then open up a bit and look at the school level at issues of grade inflation. As you mentioned in your intro, we look at a um, high school kid who uh, there's this amazingly dedicated high school teacher who's really devoted herself to trying to help him get back on track. He was on the verge of failing out. She works with him after school. He ends up with a B in her class. But also he keeps on testing their relationship because he's not used to having uh, sort of trusting relationships with adults, and he steals her cell phone right before Christmas break. Mm. They're in a zero-tolerance district where she is contractually mandated to report the theft. And if she reports it, she knows that he's going to be actually charged as an adult with a Class C felony and probably be convicted and end up being sent to adult prison for five years. And then finally, we end with a couple of policy dilemmas around um, the allocation of scarce seats in high-quality schools uh, and about how we should think about comparing charter schools and uh, regular districts. So much to talk about there, and it's really... uh, I'm always impressed with what teachers take on, and and as you describe these things, you know, this is not some... I, I have done some... You know, a little bit of teaching in the past, but but nothing serious. And and to to hear these incredible ethical dilemmas, wow! It's to tackle this. The, the, you know, I can see as you describe teachers and you know administrators, parents need more tools to you know measure. I imagine if if you can 
quantify something. That, that's quite a uh, difficult task, I can imagine. Uh, Bert Cohen here. We're talking uh, about uh, education. Uh, the new book, Dilemmas of Educational Ethics, Cases and Commentaries. Our guests are Mira Levinson, at professor at uh, Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education, and Jacob Fay, a doctoral student there. Uh, these d- difficult situations you describe there, seeing, I mean, being traumatized there, there's the individual and there's the community. And I wonder about you know, community uh, uh, support and recognition of how important this, does, this stuff is. And I know oftentimes when uh, citizens get older, they feel like, well, you know, I don't work in the schools. I'm not a teacher. I don't have kids in the public schools. Why should I be concerned about such problems and dilemmas? What do you tell them? That actually, in a way, takes me back uh, to my previous book, No Citizen Left Behind. I mean, one of my answers is, in fact, these children are going to be controlling your future, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, These children are growing up to have civic rights and responsibilities. Uh, They are going to be deciding, actually, uh, you know, if we're really thinking about issues of age, about issues of Medicare, Social Security, about... um, you know, issues surrounding community safety, community services, uh, about the environment, right? Um, you know, so in some ways, we all have uh, just a self-interested uh, reason to care about education, no matter whether we're parents or not, no matter how old we are, you know, how whether we know any teachers or know any children. But more broadly, I think this does get back to the question of our own ethical commitments to one another. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we uh, have been given opportunities as we've grown up. We've been supported by parents, by teachers, by pastors, by, um, you know, big brothers, big sisters, neighborhood, you know, people in the neighborhood, etc. And we owe it to uh, our youngest and most vulnerable members of society also to support them as they grow and to help, um, you know, give them opportunities to lead flourishing lives. And I would say, you know, economically alone, you know, we have to have, uh, I always argue, we have to have educated young people to, 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 you know, to work in our businesses, to, you know, wait on our tables and, you know, just be qualified to what we can do. And, and we're in an, you know, intensely uh, competitive global economy here. And we need, uh, it's in our interest, whether we have kids. That's exactly right. Or, or not in schools. And as, as I was really touched, I must say, describing that, huh, that girl who, uh, you know, has had those incredible difficulties and traumatization, uh, and then decision whether or not to promote her. I wonder, is it the decision to hold back students? It was it was kind of rare when I was in school. And when you're talking about uh, Medicare, you're talking about my generation. Uh, <laughs> the the decision to promote or hold back students fundamentally is it a decision about each individual child or about every child? Uh, how what factors into that? And 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 how was that? terribly thorny issue resolved, or is it not yet resolved? So, um, it, in some ways, it's a question, you can you can make that distinction, but in some ways, it also starts to blur together, um, because as you consider uh, what you want to, you want to make a decision that's going to be in the interest of, of this child, her name is Ada in the case, um, but, uh, but what happens to Ada also sort of 
has a, has an impact on all the other students in the in the school. Will oh, they will they know, for for instance, that Ada um, was moved up to ninth grade um, with, without the uh, without meeting the standards for doing so? Right. And what about oh, other cases right. um, similar to Ada, but not Ada's that might not have the same um, potential. Uh, particulars to it that um, so some stu- some students that get left behind uh, who are who are retained um, who who don't have Ada's particular characteristics but we might also think well why is it, why is it that Mike is left behind but Ada is not um, and so it it it, it becomes um, a difficult decision uh, to to sort of pull those parse those two things apart. One of the things that, uh, so as I mentioned, we have these commentaries about the case, and the reason that we include this variety of commentaries, we have six commentators per case, is in part to model that there's no one right answer to these cases, right? These are not meant to be cases where uh, you figure out how to answer it correctly and now you know, right? These are about having a conversation and wrestling with um, hard, you know, really hard decisions. And so one of my favorite uh, commentaries uh, for this case is written by Toby Romer, who has about two decades of experience uh, as a teacher and a principal. He's now an assistant superintendent. And he writes about uh, the ways in which the teacher, in this case, uh, are so focused on the individual that they lose their attention to the system. And he argues if, in fact, they were to make choices based on how the system is supposed to work, then the system could work. He says one of the possibilities that um, is on the table but the teachers don't take seriously at all is sending uh, Ada to an alternative school. And the teachers say, oh, no, we can't do that because that's the express bus on the school-to-prison pipeline. And Toby argues, well, it's only that because nobody is willing to send hardworking, struggling students like Ada to this school. The school is supposed to serve kids like Ada, kids who are above the age, who are struggling with a lot of things at home, but where they can help her get on track. But if nobody's going to send those kids to the school, then yes, the only kids you're going to get are kids who everybody has given up on. And so he has a really fascinating argument that if you... Uh, operate the way the system is supposed to work, then you may end up being able to help both the system and individual uh, children at the same time. But then other commentators actually sort of respectfully disagree, and they say, you know, that's not actually um, going to help otherwise, and it may not help the system, too. How the system is supposed to work, that seems like what it comes back to. I mean, public education actually hasn't been around all that long, I don't think, only since the, the, uh, the later part of the 19th century, correct? Um, no, public schools were actually started fairly soon after the birth of our republic. Oh. Um, they became more widespread uh, in the early 19th century, uh, and oh, okay. um, by the middle of the 19th century, basically uh, every urban area had a public school system, and, they, and many rural areas did as well. But they were fiercely contentious then, too. Uh, I mean, people mm-hmm. don't remember this now, but there were actually riots in the streets over the public schools in the middle of the 19th century about Catholic versus Protestant education. Uh, And uh, public schools actually have been remarkable sources of controversy, in fact, since the birth of our republic. Uh, But we seem to sort of rediscover this anew in every generation. (laughs) 
<laughs> it does seem to be the case. And when you talk about, uh, I was reminded of, of what I've heard about cherry picking. Of When I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, we had you know votes for charter schools. And a lot of us were concerned about that uh, this could siphon off the, the brighter kids uh, and leave the more difficult kids to the public schools. And, and what a terrible shame that is. What about charter schools? How is that all working out? And how does that bring up the, the, the question of, of ethics? I can imagine it really does bring up that question about, uh, you know, how, how do charter schools work? Are they making a positive difference for the educational outcomes of the students who attend them? And uh, is it, uh, does it lend itself to uh, neglecting uh, the, the regular kids, the average kids? And, and, you know, I wonder if you could speak to that whole charter school's ethical dilemma. Yeah, so one of, one of the six cases, as Mira mentioned earlier, is, is precisely about um, the sort of comparing a charter school and a traditional school. And the question that we're looking at is whether or not um, the, uh, a state, a state uh, sort of charter board should vote to sort of expand the charter cap and, and make um, charters, uh, what, on what rules should, should charters be allowed to expand is basically the question. Um, and one of the, the, one of the proposals is, is whether um, they should have the same demographic and attrition rates uh, as the traditional public schools that they that they sort of share a district with, um, and uh, what's what sort of uh, what, what we do in the case is we we look at um, how the, the numbers when you when you look at sort of objective numbers around um, the public schools and 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 the charter schools. These numbers, what we think, tell us a very clear story of differences. When you start to pull them apart, it becomes harder to t- harder to, uh, to to see um, what what the what the actual difference between the charter and the traditional school might be. So, if I can jump in, we look at a school in Boston, the Academy of the Pacific Rim, and it it has amazing uh, outcomes. Their SAT scores. It serves a mostly low income. Um, population, uh, the majority are students of color, uh, and their SAT rates are actually higher than the Massachusetts state average, and Massachusetts has some of the highest SAT scores in the country. Uh, almost all of their school, their children go on to college. Uh, they get high standardized test scores on the state standardized test. They look great. On the other hand, those are the outcomes for about 30 kids a year whom they graduate in 12th grade, and they start in 5th grade with about 100 kids. And what happens is, you know, you were talking about cherry-picking. It's not that they're initially cherry-picking right. kids, right? But just sort of, over time, right. um, a, a number of students, in fact, 60 to 70% of them, end up leaving the school for a variety of reasons. Now, some of them for very good reasons. They end up going to highly prestigious exam schools in the Boston Public Schools, like Boston Latin, which is the oldest public school in the country. Uh, others may get into competitive private schools, right? I mean, there are a lot of good reasons for kids to leave a school. Others, though, probably um, can't keep up with the uh, academic demands that the Academy of the Pacific Rim uh, places. They have expectations for volunteer hours, for summer work, for studying Mandarin Chinese, and, you know, some of those kids leave Academy of the Pacific Rim and return to the Boston Public Schools. And so the question is, all right, 
APR has these fantastic results right. for the 30% of the students who stick with them to the end. Boston does not have such fantastic results. And on the other hand, as you said, they're serving a much wider variety of kids, including some of those very kids who decide that they can't keep up with what APR is asking them. And so how do we make sense of this, right? How do we compare APR to BPS? If we look at the top 30% of kids in BPS, Mm -hmm. they also are extraordinary. They're going to college. They're all, you know, graduating, right? They're doing really well, too, but that doesn't make any sense either. Um, And so interestingly, in the commentaries, uh, we have commentators who take very, very different uh, positions on this. So Pedro Naguera, who's a famed sociologist uh, at NYU, says, yeah, if you look at how this works out in New York City, he compares uh, New York City to what's happening in, a, in the case, he says, you definitely see cherry picking. And what you see is that the public district schools are being asked to serve a more and more high-needs population, and they're not really being given the credit for that or the resources for that, and the charters are establishing the separate path. On the other hand, you have a commentator like Rick Hess, who's the head of education policy at the American Enterprise Institute, saying, why should we expect every school to serve every kid well? Let's allow schools actually to do what Mm. they can do really well and have a whole thriving set of schools that um, do well a particular thing rather than do mediocrely everything. Mm. And then we have a commentator like Patricia Jalen, who is a... um, in the Massachusetts State Legislature and who sits on the Education Committee, who says, you know, well, charters were supposed to actually be uh, sites of innovation and exploration and sort of trying out things that then may be able to spread to regular district schools, but I don't see that happening. Instead, she says, I see charters going one way and districts going the others, yes. and, there's, and there's not an ability to share best practices because the charters can uh, take on practices like extended school days that we're not allocating money, say, to the regular district Mm. schools to do. So don't, you know, so the charters may be doing what they're doing well in some cases, but we can't actually expand that, and this is not a sustainable venture. Um, Mm. So... I will totally agree with you. This is an ethical dilemma, and there are a lot of very thoughtful people who reach um, complementary or even competing conclusions about this very question. I mean, for to, to add on to that, um, one of the other comments of commentators on this case, Harry Brighouse, who's a philosopher at the University of Wisconsin, actually um, argues that if we are to hold charters to the same standards um, of the demographic standards and attrition standards that tradi- uh, traditional public schools have, then we might actually exacerbate tendencies within the charter schools mm. to cherry-pick students because um, they'll look for students who are going to succeed at their school uh-huh. um, right off from the get-go so that they can uh, meet these standards that they're, they're being held to. Wow. If, if you just tuned in, this is a big subject, very... Uh it's it's ethical dilemmas. Uh, that's the title of the book here: Dilemmas of Educational Ethics, Cases and Commentaries. Bert Cohen here, our guests are Mira Levinson and uh, uh, Jacob Fay, doctoral student. At, they're both affiliated with the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And as I think, you know, I, the focus of keeping democracy alive, obviously, is democracy. And we've had, uh, there was the Gilded Age back in the 1890s where there were a few people with a great 
amount of resources and a lot of people without. And we're a lot closer to that now than I think we've ever been before. And as you describe these these situations, you know, the cherry picking, uh, the, the charter schools, which, you know, there's obviously a lot or, you know, there's a great deal of variation within the charter schools. I wonder about, you know, how this is affecting, you know, what is essential for a democracy, which is an educated public uh, with relatively uh, equitable education. And now, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, kids from different geographic areas, you know, have better education. And and it's not supposed to be like that. I wonder if it is at all realistic to consider the prospect of improving educational opportunities for all without pitting the well-off against the less well-off families and communities. Is is this even, I mean, that's talk about ethical dilemmas. Yikes. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, one that uh, educational uh, policymakers and uh, reformers have been struggling with now for decades. Uh, we have this, uh, one of the cases in Dilemmas of Educational Ethics um, looks at that very question about how you balance the interests and the power of the well-off uh, with the interests and the lack of power right. with the less well-off. Mm-hmm. and. Um, it, in the case of allocating um, sort of, of school choice uh, and oh, yes. and how democratic and how transparent can you be? So we look at uh, the Boston Public Schools, which adopted a new school assignment policy a couple of years ago uh, that on its face actually seems to increase equity. It gives everybody a basket of schools uh, to choose from, and, and families can go around and visit each of the schools. They wow. tend to get about 10 to 14 schools in their basket. So it's a lot, but it's not totally overwhelming. Over the course of, you know, four or five months, you could probably visit many of the schools or talk to um, other parents or to friends to sort of find out about yeah. the ones that you can't visit. You learn about uh, the different schools, and then uh, you enter the lottery, and you give a rank-ordered ch- uh, list of choices of what schools you want your kid to go to. Uh-huh. And uh, for uh, families who live in poor neighborhoods where there may not be uh, a lot of high-quality schools or highly-resourced schools, mm-hmm. uh, BPS, the Boston Public Schools, adds high qu- higher-quality schools to those families' baskets that are, say, somewhat further away, and they guarantee them transportation to get there. So this is, on the face of it, um, a program that's intended to increase equity, increase equality of opportunity. On the other hand, when we did the analysis of um, the actual choice sets and the actual chances that mm-hmm. uh, a child has, say, to get into a high-quality school, we realized that um, what the policy is doing is pandering to uh, middle-class and upper-middle-class families because of how dense certain neighborhoods are, right? Wealthier neighborhoods have larger houses. They tend to have fewer apartment buildings, et cetera. There are fewer kids actually competing for seats in those schools. And because of how these baskets are formed, yes, um, families who may live in neighborhoods that don't have many high-quality schools are given some high-quality schools in their baskets. But families who live in neighborhoods that have a lot of high-quality schools, they don't have any of those high-quality schools taken away, right? So they may have more high-quality schools in their baskets. 
And we realize that this is, in fact, unequitable, that unfortunately, in some ways, the more highly privileged children actually have a greater opportunity to get into better schools. But this may be justified because it is a means of keeping the middle class in the public school system. As you know, you know, traditionally many urban school systems have been really beset by poverty. It's very hard to have really good schools when the vast majority of the kids in the school are living in poverty. And there's a ton of research data to show that um, uh, to show that when you have um, kids with a predominantly middle class uh, student body, that even poor children do much better in those schools. And so there's good uh-huh. reason to try to get and keep the middle class in the public school system, and may, and since the middle class can, in fact, move if they don't get a good school, right. or they might be able to afford private school, right. the justification then for giving uh, families inequitable opportunities, to giving wealthier families actually a greater chance of getting into a good school in the public school system is that it keeps it in the public school system. And so we talk about this as the ethics of pandering and have some <laughs> wonderful commentaries about it. <laughs> ethics of pandering. Makes me think about the 2016 election for some strange reason. <laughs> <laughs> what, now, you talk about equity. Uh, that word has come up a few times. What's the difference between equality, which strikes me as an entirely unrealistic goal for public education? I mean, a nice goal, but you're never going to have equality. What's, what's the difference between equality and equity, and, and how perhaps attainable is this uh, notion of equity? Yeah, that's such an important question. Um, one way of thinking about this is that when we talk about equality, what we seem to be talking about is uh, treating people the same, right? right. Uh, say, making sure that um, if you have two schools, each of whom is serving, say, 300 children, they have the same number of teachers, the same amount of money, the same programming. Uh, but we could contra- contrast that with the concept of equity, uh, which is not sameness, but making sure that, say, kids get what they need, um, that the, it may not be that the inputs are the same, but that you're trying to strive for some equitable outputs. And so if you have, say, a large number of English language learners, mm-hmm. uh, you might need some extra teachers. You might need some, uh, you know, uh, English as a second language teachers. You might need some textbooks in Spanish. You might need some family outreach coordinators. If you have uh, children who are struggling with poverty at home, you might need to provide free school lunches and free school breakfasts and some free after-school care, right? And so there, it's not that you want to give every kid the same thing. It's that you want to give every kid what they need in order to succeed. Uh, and that we can think of as the macro level, right? You know, I was just talking about, say, comparing one school to another. But also this comes up at the micro level of, say, in the classroom. So we mentioned that we have this case in the book about this girl, Kate, um, who uh, is mentally somewhat unstable, Mm -hmm. uh, and she can explode when she gets anxious and stressed and and disrupt everybody's learning uh, and scare the other kids. Also in this class are a kid, Frank, um, who has uh, moderate dyslexia and is really struggling still to read in the third grade. There's another kid, Philip, who is very confident, very highly successful academically, 
and can use, you know, extra push uh, in order to continue learning. And they have a teacher, Ms. Brown, who has to figure out, okay, so how do I behave equitably? How do I treat my students equitably in this situation? They don't need the same supports. They need very different supports. And um, the kinds of supports I can offer trade off against each other, too. Uh, in, in this case, in fact, uh, Kate and Philip and Frank are working in a group together trying to classify rocks. Uh, Kate is really excited about this because she loves rocks. And then Frank and Philip get into an argument about whether or not a rock is igneous or metamorphic. And they get more and more into this argument. It's totally on target, right? They're academically sure. entirely engaged. Yeah. Ms. Brown is thrilled that Frank is feeling so academically confident that he can really push this argument uh, with Philip, who's usually, you know, far superior. But their very argument is agitating Kate and risks pushing uh -huh. her to the point of no return where she'll start shrieking uh -huh. and banging on the desk and so forth. And so she has to decide, am I going to try to advance Frank's academic confidence? Am I going to try to help uh, Frank and Philip be more so socially, emotionally aware as to what Kate needs? Am I going to remove Kate preemptively from the situation? so that the rest of the class can continue their work on rocks? Should I, say, take over the class myself and have the whole class discuss, uh, you know, what this rock is in a more orderly manner in a way that may calm Kate down? And this is also a question of how do we treat kids equitably um, in a way that ensures that all kids get what they need in order to succeed and to thrive. Wow. I, w I wonder, you know, if if teachers how often they feel sort of on their own and, you know, staying up at night trying to figure out these ethical dilemmas, what resources they have. There's this new book, which is obviously meant to be a resource, Dilemmas of Educational Ethics. What resources do teachers have? Do Does the administration, uh, do school committees, the teachers' unions, you know, these these dilemmas must come up, but you know, frankly, until researching for this show, I hadn't really thought about ethical dilemmas that the teachers face. What kind of resources are there? Are the school administrators uh, as aware of this as perhaps they could be or should be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think many educators and school leaders and you know, school board members are aware of this sort of in their heart of hearts and in private. Um, they don't acknowledge it publicly. You know, when we, to the extent that we talk about the ethical dimensions of our work as educators, as parents, as policymakers, et cetera, we tend to do so in a very moralistic way, right? Say, you know, well, we care about equity, and you just care about, say, job you know, preservation in the teachers' unions, or you just care about increasing the for-profit uh, marketplace for schools, right? You know, we, it, all of these uh, things get traded back and forth, these charges of how one side is immoral and the other side is moral. And our hope is, uh, through this book, through modeling how you might define a case, how you might focus in on tough ethical dilemmas by modeling the idea that there can be many, many people who are like well-intentioned, you know, good sure. at heart, who actually yeah. do are committed to real values, but who may also disagree. 
that we can enable, um, you know, people in different communities and in different settings to start having these conversations because, frankly, there's not a whole lot out there uh, for uh, teachers and school leaders and school board members and parents and members of the public to draw on. But we are hoping, you know, frankly, to start a movement in that area. Yeah, and I, and I should add that, you know, when we've, when we've piloted these cases or worked with teachers, we, we have so many people who see them and say, I know this problem. I've, I've, been in, I've been in this exact situation, and the way that you're framing it gives me a new way to think about it. So I think that um, as far as what sort of resources are available, teachers have each other, they ha and school leaders have each other. They, they have um, networks and, um, you know, to, that they can use, um, but... but this sort of book gives them a different way to, to talk about it and to think about it. We like to think about it in terms of being an ethical toolkit, uh -huh. that it's a new sort of language and a new way of um, thinking about the particular problems that they face um, that opens up these sort of discussions and creates space to, to do that in a way where, you know, you aren't feeling like um, people are just initially going to judge you because of the decisions you've had to make in your classroom. <laughs> And you mentioned a little bit before about the school-to-prison pipeline. Tell us about that. What ethical ethical responsibilities do educators have to stop that pipeline, to, to disrupt the pipeline, and how might those responsibilities create ethical dilemmas of their own? Yeah, it is so hard, right? Because oh, as sure. educators, we are operating in a much larger context, right? Yes. And we can't take responsibility for everything. Right. And on the other hand, uh, we do feel responsible, right? You know, th these are young human beings in our care, and the last thing that we want to do is uh, make a decision that uh, we think is going to send a kid, say, down the road to... Um, you know, imprisonment, right? right? Lack of opportunities then for really a lifetime afterwards. Yes. Since, as we know, once you are involved in the justice system, especially as an adult, right, then suddenly public housing is closed off to you. So many employment opportunities are closed off to you. Pell grants to go to college are closed off, right? I mean, mm. in the United States, we do so much to close off opportunities mm. to people who have been caught mm -hmm. in any way in the justice system. Mm. Uh, and so as teachers and as school leaders, uh, we feel utterly impelled to try to, you know, what we want to do is expand young people's opportunities, right, not constrain them. But at the same time, uh, many policies say, you know, we, we see an individual kid get caught in the system, and we think, no, no, that's not, that can't be right. But uh, it may be that a policy was adopted, at least historically, for sensible reasons to try to, say, change the culture of the school as a whole or to change the mm. uh, community sure. as a whole. So we have this case in the book um, about this teacher, as I mentioned, uh, who's, like, really reached out to this high schooler who she teaches. She's helped, she's formed a relationship with him that uh, is one of the first trusting relationships he's had with an adult uh, in his life. And she's so excited that she's helping to get him on the right track. And she is so devastated when she realizes that he seems to have stolen her cell phone. And uh, so the commentators about the case, they focus on, well, what are her 
say, role responsibilities as a teacher? What are her role responsibilities as a citizen, uh, which may be different? What are her role responsibilities as somebody who's established a personal relationship with this kid? How do we think about, um, in fact, the larger culture of surveillance that she has become a part of? Mary Patillo, yeah. wonderful sociologist, uh, writes about the ways in which, because she confides in the teacher uh, who has the classroom next door, that now she needs to worry about the ways in which that teacher is going to exercise surveillance on her as to whether or not she actually follows the zero-tolerance guidelines. Oh um, and she has to decide, well, gee, am I going to risk, say, not, um, uh, not reporting him if that runs the risk then that I might be reported for failing to adhere to the, the district rules that she had signed on to when she signed the contract? Wow, no good deed uh, goes unpunished. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and the fates of uh, famous people, unfortunately, like Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray make it unfortunately clear that there's very little room for error for young black men as they navigate life. What do you say to those who argue that zero tolerance policies like you were talking about, while seemingly arbitrary and merciless, actually serve to help prepare to, to wake up these young men uh, for the reality that awaits them outside of the school? Um. Yeah, you know, uh, this is an important question um, because uh, that is much of the justification that is given. In fact, in the mm -hmm. cell phone case, uh, the principal right. of the school uh, uses that as a way to justify um, his very harsh uh, uh -huh. expectations and the, the use of zero tolerance, as he says, to the students who are mostly African-American I do not want you to become the next Freddie Gray. I do not want you to become the next Trayvon, right? right. Um, the next Michael Brown. And yet, uh, actually, Mary Patillo points this out too. There's in fact no evidence that uh, you know following the rules to the letter uh, is going to protect young black men in the United States today, right? You know, if you think about Tamir Rice. Uh, he was not doing anything wrong, in no, fact, when he was wrong. at a park playing with a toy. Yes. If you think about, um, you know, so, so many young men, you know, uh, what was Trayvon doing? He was walking down the street yes. with Skittles in his pocket, right? So that um, it, the, the idea that by training, say, uh, black boys, black teenagers, to follow the law um, and to follow the rules, um, you know, exactly to the letter means that they are going to be safe. Uh, I think that's just false. Yes, definitely. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guests today are the uh, co-authors of a new book, Dilemmas of Educational Ethics, Cases and Commentaries, Meira Levinson and uh, uh, doctoral student Jacob Fay. But... Uh, Education, just so much uh, to talk about. And, you know, these, these students, they're not pure subjects. They're, they're people. They're human beings who are being, you know, guided through life to become uh, self-responsible. And I wonder about the, any, any discussion about the role of uh, older teenagers, what, if any, role 
students themselves should play in their own education and decisions surrounding their education. Is it clear when they're ready to take on such responsibilities? How important is it to involve them in in some of their own decision-making? Of course, not at too young of an age. I was part of an experiment in the early 60s uh, about students uh, uh, planning their own future. It was a total disaster, you know, seventh grade. But older students, I wonder about that, if you could speak to that. Yeah, so I think the first point you make is, is absolutely right. We, we would think about this differently depending on the age of the child. Yeah, um, but this is, this is one of the things, actually, that comes up in a few of the comments on the promotion and retention case about ADA, um, is that while the teachers are deciding um, what to do, whether to promote or retain her, ADA is not in the room and is not part of that conversation. Right. Um, and her voice might be a very important source of insight into the decision they end up making. And, it, and they, I think it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's not definitive I, either way. I think there's, there's both um, benefits and drawbacks to including student voice in decisions, um, like the promotion or retention. Um, but uh, it, even just bringing up the question helps us think about the ways in which the, the student voice adds a dimension, adds an important dimension to the decisions we make in schools. Um, I, I do a lot of work on school closures, and, and, and an important source of um, my own research is, is looking at some of the student groups um, in Philadelphia and in Chicago that have mobilized um, and, uh, and speak out about the changes that are happening to their schools, um, either in, in concert with teachers' unions, um, on their own, um, for their peers, for policymakers. Uh, and I, I think it's just an important source of insight that um, that educators and policymakers should be considering when we uh, when we're attending to some of these difficult decisions. We are talking about educational ethics cases and commentaries, um, and back you know in, in trying to to uh, address issues of equality and equity back in the 19 mid 1970s there was a uh, busing which didn't work out real well to very mixed success well, what about this idea of inclusion somehow is inclusion an important value to to pursue for all students what about this I think it's also important, actually, to challenge the idea that busing was itself a failure. At least integration, where it truly happened, tended, in fact, to be fairly successful. Hmm. Um, it was really, it, it's frankly the only thing that we know uh, that works at scale to improve uh, the outcomes for poor kids and for kids of color. When you have integrated schools, racially, ethnically, economically integrated schools, you have better schools, and you have better schools for all kids. Um, And so unfortunately, though, uh, because we had, you know, high-profile resistance to integration in various places, uh, the story became, oh, well, busing was a failure. It didn't work. Nobody liked it anyway. And that wasn't true. We actually just didn't try very hard, and we didn't try very long. Um, Hmm. And we are trying somewhat harder these days to integrate students with disabilities and uh, into, you know, regular education classrooms. And we're trying somewhat harder to integrate English language learners into uh, mainstream classrooms. And because we're trying somewhat harder, 
that is going somewhat better. Um, it's not, though, that we're trying tremendously hard, right? If we were really putting our all into it, we could be doing much better still, I would say. I would think so. And, well, actually, back in the late 60s, the optimistic times, I actually somehow imagined that at this point in the 21st century, we'd be so dedicated to education. And like that old poster, you know, imagine a world where our schools had all the money they need and, and the Pentagon had to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. Well, we've gone a long way in, I think, a not very good direction. And, you know, in, education is absolutely essential to a democracy. In a fascist system, education is the enemy. You don't want people thinking for themselves because the public could challenge authority. Uh, but there has, it seems, been uh, from policymakers kind of an intentional dumbing down at the hands of Republicans. I will say, obviously, I'm a tad partisan. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's produced the desired results. It's called Trumpism. People not valuing thinking for themselves. Your sense, as from your perspective, from your optic, are policymakers getting it that we that we need to have uh, more investment in education, not just you know money, uh, but uh, that it has to be a priority to keep democracy alive. How, are educators generally concerned about the survival of democracy in America? Are we starting to make some progress? And I didn't even mention parental involvement. I mean, you know, parents have to be involved in education as well. I guess there's a lot of questions there. Somebody go for it. Um, yeah. So I would say that um, although there are, there's a huge amount of attention being paid to education these days, but uh, I think, unfortunately, the attention that's being paid is how can is solely about um, efficiency, right? Yes. How can we mm. do more with less? Oh, yes. How can we get more bang for our buck? Maybe if we sit kids in front of computers, that will work. Maybe if we narrow the curriculum, that will work. Maybe if we figure out um, how to get kids on pathways, you know, straight line without having them explore or pay or play or, you know, be creative, that will work, right? And I think that you are right that uh, what it takes to have an education that's truly supportive of democracy and truly supportive of human flourishing yes. is not a relentlessly efficient system that is designed to slot kids into predetermined uh, spaces, yeah. but is a system that is actually designed to allow kids to explore, to become really great at something, mm. to develop their basic capacities and everything, but really to go deep in some areas, to, um, to think for themselves, to create things anew, to do projects, to do interdisciplinary learning. All of that is time-consuming, it's messy, it's hard to standardize, um, and it requires really great teachers and great school leaders and great communities that who will support those institutions. And I would not say that we are yet committed in this country to mm. um, providing all children those kinds of opportunities, experiences, people supporting them, unfortunately. Well, Mira uh, Levinson and Jacob Faye, thank you so much for the time and for doing what you can 
<laughs> this is some heavy lifting. We gotta attend to these <laughs> issues. The book is called uh, "Dilemmas of Educational Ethics: Cases and Commentaries." Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Up in the morning and out to school, the teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. 